Welcome to the Curious and Connected podcast, where we're hoping to connect students in our EDD program and beyond to foster a sense of community. My name's Leah, and I'm joined by my co-host. Monica here. Hello. <laughs> um, and today, our guest of honor is Christian Achema. Hi, Christian. <laughs> Hello, Thank everyone. You. Great to be here with you. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Um, so our first question for you, Christian, is we just want you to tell us about you. Anything that comes to mind, whether you want to share work, education, personal, whatever you'd like to share. All right. Well, thanks again. Uh, to begin with, my most important role is uh, one of a husband and a father to our three gremlins, um, who now two of them have hit their teenage years. So it is like mayhem at home. But other than that, those are the two most important roles. Um, glad to be in this program. I started out uh, my career in uh, HIV and AIDS deep, deep, deep in the villages uh, of Rakai district in Uganda, and also with refugees in South Sudan. Um, so that's great. That's what really informs all my work these days. I've worked in the sciences, uh, leading a science academy in Uganda also led the Africa program of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences for seven years. Um, I have a degree in math and philosophy as an undergrad, uh, again here in the U.S. at St. John's College in New Mexico, then moved on to Georgetown, uh, got my master's there in international development, got another one in corporate governance uh, through uh, the Corporate Governance Institute of the U.K. based in London, and here I am. I love so many things and I've uh, worked in a multilateral world at UNICEF in Geneva, uh, Switzerland. So I think from that perspective, you can say I'm all for cooperation among states. And here I am now these days leading a uh, Quaker boarding school in rural Ohio, still maintain my deep connections to the science world in Sub-Saharan Africa. But this is what I was called to do uh, one day. And my wife said, well, you cannot shut that door. You can't shut up about your high school in Ohio. So it's about time you did something for it. So here we are. Uh, <laughs> well, Christian, I'd love to hear just a little bit more about the, the timeline of your international background, because you were talking about many different roles in, in countries here. <laughs> so just kind of what led you to rural Ohio? <laughs> well, rural Ohio, I went to this high school. So one day in Uganda, a board member from this school visited my school in, in, in Kampala and asked the headmaster to send a student from there to Ohio to represent the school and start the linkages. And so my headmaster uh, asked me to come to Ohio and I loved it. And this is the school really where I learned my love for books that I really loved to read and didn't have to be a medical doctor. Uh, it, my father wanted to kill me when I told him that, <laughs> but he's over it now. Uh, and so that's why I ended up going to a, a great books college and studying the things I studied as an undergrad. And so it was after that I went straight to graduate school. Then from there is when I went to Switzerland, uh, when that was an awesome experience, uh, just thrown into the deep end uh, right away doing vaccines and immunization work. At really that high, high level, getting so much money. I didn't know there was that much money in the world uh, that you could ask people for. Hey, we have to roll out a new <laughs> vaccine. Can we put together $1.5 billion? 
sure, let's all meet in Rome and do, do, do a fundraising campaign. And all of a sudden, it, I had no idea how things worked at that level. So it was good to know. Um, so that happened. Then I came back to the U.S. in uh, 2008, January. And that is uh, so soon after that's when I started working for the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. And again, that led me back to Africa. And I loved it because building science academies across uh, the continent, we started with eight. And by the time I left in uh, 2015, we had over 23 of them. And now uh, they are close to you know 40. And that's great because you need an independent advisor uh, to government on so many issues, including contentious ones. And in our part of the world, governments don't usually actually use any sort of evidence, any data to make decisions. It's it's what the flavor of the day is, whatever the president wants, that's what you do. So we're trying to get that evidence-informed policymaking uh, going. Oh, Carl, uh, I missed out that the part where I did work in uh, Rakai and South Sudan, uh, that came uh, right, uh, right in the middle of my graduate school time. I took time off uh, to do it and I, I loved it. I keep in touch with that group to this day. Um, so, what else? I missed one thing, and that was the time I taught in Canada. Uh, on and off for six years in British Columbia. I had totally forgotten about that time. <laughs> uh, but I did. I told uh, uh, undergrads, uh, really, they wanted to start an African studies department. So my former professor from uh, St. John's College called me and said, hey, come and teach these courses. Can you do it? I said, sure. And I ended up in British Columbia. Loved it. Um, some of my students stay in touch to this day. And one of my favorite courses there was African feminism. It was me uh, and 12 students. And we just had a blast in that course. Uh, so there we go. And then I kept going after 2015 is when I went over to run the National Academy of Sciences in Uganda. And even that one came as just again a, a calling I went the then president of the academy, and this is the person who was first to report on AIDS in Eastern Central Africa in the early 80s. Uh, he came to me and said, well, Christian, you've been in the US for long. You've been in Switzerland. What more do you want out of here? Come back home. And so I went back home. It was great to be back home, but only for you know three years. Then my Quaker school called. Uh, it was after a difficult time for the school and they needed to reshape it, uh, turn it around. And they called and I was on the call with them very loudly. And uh, that's when uh, Vivian, my wife, chimed in and said, yeah, you, you, you have to go. You have to do it. So that's what I'm doing here now these days. Wow, you get a lot of pull, you get a lot of calls. I don't know how you take them all. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. I love your story. I also think about your kids because you were saying they're the, the munchkins that are underneath you. I bet you, you know, we all have like look up for our parents. Like you must just be like the shining star. <laughs> like, uh, uh, how do well, I follow in dad's footsteps when they're this big? <laughs> well, they don't show that side to me. <laughs> they tell me they show me that I'm nothing frequently, and uh, their, their wishes. That's what I need to do. Actually, after this this research design final exam, 
I went off to play pool with them immediately. They were banging the door, said, you said 90 minutes. Yeah, we are. It's time to go. <laughs> yeah. Oh Kids like to humble us often, don't they? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm super excited about all the things that you've told us uh, about you and your background. Uh, so I'm really interested to see kind of your take of what's been like the most interesting thing or topic that's spoken to you most in our course content. Course content, right from the beginning of our 8110 course, the thing that really struck me was the, our readings on uh, memory and how organizations tell their stories. And in fact, uh, that's what I ended up writing on for that first uh, assignment, integrating the literature. It was just fascinating. See that those who control the organization will figure out which parts of the parts past to bring out and which ones to not bring out. And they will interpret them whichever way they want to suit their needs. Uh, that I found just so fascinating. I had never studied anything uh, on memory at all. And then, of course, now we got into our psychology class and we started talking about the uh, false memories and the cues and so on. Ended up doing my magazine article again on memory. And a key question that study was, well, what if you had to choose one memory to accompany you in death? What would it be? And apparently when you ask that question, you elicit so many other things above and beyond what you'd get from a usual timeline or in an autobiography. This happened, this key thing. This, I say, well, what if sir, that one thing was to accompany you in your casket or wherever else you go? People end up choosing different things that uh, show you really what they value and who, how they see themselves. So I continue to enjoy the things on memory, uh, organizational narratives. I have a feeling I'm going to carry this thing with me to the end of our program. Wow, that's so interesting. This summer is actually the first time I've taken a psychology course in my educational career. So I've been joking around with my family because my mom is a really good multitasker and always rags on my dad because he is very one track minded and can't focus on more than one thing at a time. And so I've been telling them. The research says multitasking is a myth. Um, <laughs> um, so it's, it's funny. I've found that super interesting and valuable personally and organizationally too mm -hmm. yeah so uh, switching gears a little bit and I feel like just based on what we've talked about so far there are probably so many different ways that you could take this question <laughs> we'd love for you to tell us about an accomplishment that you're super proud of so this could also be like work personal education really anything and like I said I feel like there's so much to choose from in your history and all the awesome things that you've done Right. On this one, it was hard to pick for sure. Um, on the, besides the family side, because that's the, that's the most important thing. Um, the two things that came up that tied for first place to share with our group, uh, one personal, one professional. The personal one came when my father, who is, you know, up to today is bigger than life, and my entire life, he you know, he'd just been this diplomat, global globetrotter, everything and all. And in 2009, uh, that's the first time that uh, he ever came close to even saying, 
to, to, to apologize. And he actually did, in fact, apologize for things that had happened in the past. And uh, that, to me, is not a personal accomplishment. It was a combined accomplishment for both of us because uh, both of us are very strong-headed and uh, you know, both of us had dug our heels in. And in that moment, we were vulnerable to each other. And uh, it was so moving because uh, we had people of our clan. We had our clan elders around. Uh, we had my father, my aunts, my uncles around. And so it made it so meaningful for both of us. And with him, uh, making an apology allowed me to make an apology as well. And so at that point, it gave me a model of, of, of being, being a parent and that you can't just set yourself up as infallible, you know, unapproachable. And so that, that's, that's the one on the personal side. And so since then, my dad and I have had such a, a good relationship, very strong, and I didn't expect it to be that way, but, uh, you know, people had already said, you two are more alike than different, uh, including his father, my, my grandfather. You two are more alike than different, and you'll see in the future what will happen. And it certainly did. Um, so that's one. I, I love it. It makes me so comfortable in my own skin. And uh, I didn't realize that was a huge source of insecurity until after that uh, moment. So that's on the personal side, on the professional front. Uh, so when early days of trying to turn around this National Academy of Sciences in Uganda, now we received a call from the president's office uh, saying, well, will you, you people give us advice right now? We need it in five days. We need to understand whether homosexuality is, uh, you know, nature or nurture. And so the call was transferred to me. I listened and I say, well, in five days, we can't give you a response. <laughs> and so they convened their own panel of other scientists and they came out with this paper in five days. And then the president assented to a draconian law that criminalized homosexuality. If you knew anyone who was homosexual and didn't report it, the police should go to jail, all sorts of things in there. And so, but some of the scientists uh, involved in that work disowned the report and wrote a minority report. And that's when my organization then picked it up. We said, okay, there's a miscarriage of science here. Some things don't add up. And uh, we teamed up with uh, the Academy of Sciences in South Africa. Uh, one of the first things we said was, look, any committee we put together, any expert panel we put together has to number one, be brilliant. Number two has to be boring. Every single person on the committee must be boring. It has to be someone based in some lab, someone who has not written an advocacy paper of any kind. They have to be boring. And we have to get them together to talk. So we did. We got them the geneticists, uh, sociologists, anthropologists, legal scholars. We got a panel of about 16 people from different fields Mm -hmm. um you know literary scholars and all and we sequestered them uh the rockefeller foundation's uh castle in uh, bellagio in italy and so they they really rambled through a lot of lots of evidence and then the end our report came out 
before we launched the report, some people said, Christian, are you sure? And we're going to get shut down. Said, well, if we are shut down, it will be for a good thing. It will be for a good cause. Uh, but I don't think we'll be shut down. Let's go because our report, as it stands, it's not an advocacy report, lays out the evidence uh, clearly. And so we went in there, uh, you know, we launched this report and we launched it. We, we asked an old man, uh, biotechnology, someone would look like the most conservative human being in this world. And he set it up nicely. He said, mm -hmm. well, historically, we used to murder women who got pregnant uh, in, out of wedlock. We used to throw twins off the mountains. We used to do so many things that we don't do now because we evolved. Um, and so with this particular issue, as much as people are trying to politicize it, if you don't want to read the evidence, then we'll let you be. But for those people who are who actually care about evidence, then here it is for you. Uh, and just all, and that's all it took for everyone in the room to calm down and listen to the findings of the report and recommendations. And we had people from the police there. We had people from the justice department there. And that was that. In about eight months after we launched that report, the law was repealed. And so really professionally for me, that's been the, the high point of work that I've been involved in, uh, you know, where people try to be so conservative and close them and say, no, wait, I mean, what are you saying? This is a Western importation. It is not. Look at all these historical manuscripts mm -hmm. written by our own historians. They show we have lived with, you know, our fellow human beings, we, who have, you know, it is diverse in human sexuality. We've had it and boom, boom, boom. So that was a real learning experience. I went home feeling, well, we barely have money in this organization, but we did something worthwhile today. That's awesome. What an amazing accomplishment, too. I also love that you called it boring. <laughs> but I just want to highlight the fact that it's probably not, you know, boring in the sense that we think about but they're you know just very well structured <laughs> they yes. have their stuff together they haven't put a lot of stuff out that's uh controversial <laughs> so we we love the panel for doing the good work that they did that you put together oh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah some people hesitated like the notice is said i mean my lab that's all i want to do why are you taking me out of my lab you right know, she hadn't been out of that lab really her house was attached to the lab she wow. hadn't left that area in about six years. And yeah. here we're saying to Italy. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Well, Christian, thanks for, for sharing that. That's really an amazing accomplishment. I guess this probably ties into our last question a little bit. Um, what does leadership mean to you or what does your ideal leader look like, especially since you displayed such leadership in that situation? Oh, well, I'll tell you, and I think this has been a, a theme of ours since we started this uh, uh, program, and just being in academia, really, uh, I saw some very horrible things happen to young scientists. They would get put down, uh, and they would end up doing so much work and no credit. And part of it was people saying, well, I paid my dues. I paid my dues to academia, and that meant that other people had to suffer the same way they did. 
And I said, no way. If you're going to be a leader, you have to pull people up. You have to pull whether you like it or not, you are in a powerful position uh, and you can touch people in ways that even you won't realize in the moment. And so for me, that's, that's the real essence of leadership, pulling people up, pulling them up all the time because you are there. And in my case, many people have worked together to pull me up, including people that, uh, you know, that, that I barely know. There's, there's someone I met for 30 minutes who paid for my graduate school. Based on the 30 minute discussion, we, we just talked over dinner. I said, well, uh, he, he liked me. He was a father of one of my friends in college. So I think that is, that's the role in everything. Are you pulling people up? I always go back to that, even when I have to make a, a difficult decision, even when it's about getting, you know, firing someone. It's always that question I have in my mind. Are you pulling people up? Are you doing what's actually best for the community or just something that you want to achieve on your own? And so every time you lead with those values, even the most difficult decisions turn out to be good ones. Wow, that's so awesome. I feel like that story speaks so much to how special you are that someone met you and in 30 minutes decided they wanted to contribute to your success and your future. And obviously that was a worthwhile investment because you've been paying it forward to others throughout your entire career. I just love that story. That's very cool. I have never met, I have not seen him since. We've talked on the phone. <laughs> I email him once or twice a year. That's it. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if he follows along all of your professional journey, though. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, Christian. That was our oh, last question you. for you. Thank Yay. you so much. And I, I love our cohort so much. I love the program so much. I'm glad I didn't start the summer before, which is which was my original cohort. Say, so I'll start in the fall. Uh, that's the right decision. Yes. Thank goodness. You're with the, with the best cohort. Yes. Absolutely. Not that we're comparing, but we're awesome. Absolutely. <laughs> also, thank you again so much, Christian. And to anyone listening, we hope you'll join us for our next episode of Curious and Connected. Awesome.